Let's pray together this morning. Lord, your great love endures forever. And we thank you for it, and that is the story that we have as your beloved children in Christ, that we have known and we have experienced and we rejoice in a love that is greater than anyone in this world can possibly or ever love us. And though we may love our mom and dad greatly and they may love us greatly, our children may love us much, we may love our children much, you love us and you love our children, you love our parents more than we could ever love anybody. And so all of our hope is you. It is not primarily to be in one another, but it is to be in you. Even as we love one another heartily. (laughs) And may we do that. May we shine the love of God to all those around us. And shine the love of Christ to our families, to our children, to our parents, to our relatives, to our co-workers, and to all people. May you help us to love as you've loved us. And so we come this morning recognizing and coming under you, the living God who is sovereign, who is in control, who is Lord over all of history, bringing about your plans for your glory. And how we look forward to the day when we will be with you forever, rejoicing forever. And you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, as we praise you, the living and one and the only God. And so may you give us grace today and give us help today. May you help us as we go to your word, as we see your holiness, as we see the seriousness of sin and the depth of our need for you. May we all the while know this is no contradiction of your love. You are God. You are holy. You're loving. You're just. You're good. You're righteous. You're perfect. You're infinite. You're glorious. You're beautiful. You're majestic. And you're worthy of all of our praise and all of our worship And we do not make idols and may we not make idols of only a God of love and forget that you are a God of love and holiness and righteousness and justice and wrath and purity. And so help us as we come to your word this morning and see these things. And I pray that you would give us grace as well as we are looking at another, well, as we are in this holiday season. We pray for grace for everyone here, grace in the midst of gladness that comes with these days, the joy of being with family, the joy of rejoicing in all the great things you have done. We pray for grace in the midst of even the sad times as well. Many memories are brought up now, and perhaps even hard things have happened or may happen, but Lord, give us grace for them all and may we rejoice in you and give glory to you and may Christ be our delight as we look forward to rejoicing in you this Christmas, whether that is in 
a time of gladness of soul or even in the time of sadness of soul, we pray that our joy would be Christ. And so be with us this morning. Help us as we turn to your word. May you help us to hear it, receive it, and go and live it. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through 25. And we'll be continuing our study, walking through the letter to the Galatians here. So from 1934 to 1963, Alcatraz Island in the San Francisco Bay stood as the rock. And it was known as the rock, yes, because it was an island, but also because really if you went there, you probably were not going to be able to escape from there either. (laughs) You were going there to stay there. And we know that The Rock, or Alcatraz Island, held many notorious prisoners, such as one you'll know well, Al Capone. He was prisoned there, and it was sad, even as I alluded to here, that once you were there, there was no way out. Now, outside of perhaps one instance, with Clint Eastwood, no, just kidding, not him, but what was his name, Frank Morris, I think his name was Frank Norris, something like that. Outside of one instance and his friends with him, no one really escaped from the island Alcatraz. And so for many reasons, the thought of being imprisoned at the rock is not a pleasant one, right? Not ideal. (laughs) I don't want to go there. However, imagine a prison where it's certain that you, that there's absolutely nothing that you can do to escape. Now, you may be saying to yourself, you know, okay, well, you know, I've never done anything that would send me to jail. At least I never was caught doing anything that would send me to jail, you know. And so I don't really see why I need to imagine going to prison. I mean... I'm not going to be going there. At least it's not my plan to go there. Well, imagine, though, that you are in a prison, and this cell, though, is not a physical prison cell, you know, with cement walls and steel bars. But this is a spiritual cell. And you are absolutely hemmed in. And on each side of this cell is written command after command from the law. In total, with each wall around you as you're in this cell, some 613 commands bound you within this cell. And you can't just like kind of say, you know, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to pick and choose which ones I do and which ones I don't do. It is that you have to keep every single one of them to get out. And then to add to all of that, the foundation of the cell has these two commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. 
Deuteronomy 6.5. And the second is like it as Jesus says in Matthew 22, quoting Leviticus 19.18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now with those two commands by themselves, we remember that even one, breaking one command, just one, means you have broken all of the law. You must abide by all things written in the book of the law, and anyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law is under a curse. And so let me ask you then, forgetting the 613 commands that surround you, just these ones on the bottom. (laughs) Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, or expanding in in Jesus' words there. And so right there, have you done that? Love your neighbor as yourself. Oh my. And I would just say with those two commands alone, we're well upwards of 50 times or more, even 100 times or more a day breaking those two commands. And so like I said, you're in this prison cell. And it's not just representative of you know, just an imaginary scenario. This is actually where every single one of us is outside of Christ. We're under a curse. And so there you are, overcome on every side. No amount of effort of your own can get you out. Nothing you do, no amount of going to church, no amount of reading your Bible, no amount of prayer, none of that stuff, none of those things will get you out. But right then, light breaks in. And we know that that light, that one lone hope is Christ. Well, here in our passage this morning, this light is Christ. And Paul, what he is going to do for us this morning is he is going to hold up Jesus Christ and he's going to lift him up as high as he possibly can. He's going to call you and he's going to call me to cling to him, to hope in him, and to unflinchingly put our faith in him. And not in the prison cell. And so may we do that this morning and let's see this then beginning with verse 15 of chapter 3 of Galatians 3. May the light of God's word break into and spill over into our hearts this morning. Verse 15. To give it a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring does not say unto offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. 
For the, if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before our faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came. In order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. As we have been kind of tracking and traveling along through this letter, Paul, he has been doing something, and really he has been hemming us in <laughs> in so many ways. He's been making it clear that if, if you've despised or even or if you've devised some other gospel, if you've been relying on what you do in any way whatsoever, or if you've been adding to the gospel in any way, you don't have any room to say that God is okay with that. God is not okay with it at all. No efforts of your own. Nothing that you can do. Nothing that you can devise. No philosophy. No trend. No new upcoming diet or idea. Nothing whatsoever except Christ. And so nothing of our own doing. And so if you are a Judaizer, those behind the false gospel that Paul is addressing here in this letter, what they were doing was they were adding to the gospel. They were saying law plus circumcision plus Jesus. But Paul, he has responded to them and he is still responding to them and he's saying there is no life in the law. There is no hope in addition. If you are adding anything to Christ, if you are looking to the law, you are under a curse. So he's responding to them over here. And then he's also responding to the Gentiles over here who are like, huh, that kind of makes sense. And maybe we should do that too. And so he's saying to the Gentile believer in Galatia, he's saying, you have heard the pure, undiluted, unadulterated gospel. If you go to the law for life... You are under a curse. There is no life in the law. It is only Christ. So our only hope, and your and my only hope, is Christ. 
And so he took us back to Abraham, showing that salvation and justification has always been by faith. And so we saw that in chapter 3, verses 1 through 9, and now in verses 15 through 18 here, he brings us back again. (laughs) He takes us back to Abraham, and he does this to magnify the rock-solid promises of God. The rock-solid promises of God. So he is answering very carefully those who have a math that is off, who have an Arrhenius kind of math that is an error. They're teaching a kind of gospel addition. Not allowed. (laughs) Or subtraction. Which he's not dealing with that here. Expressly. And so he gives here then an argument from the lesser to the greater. An argument from the lesser to the greater. Verses 15 through 18, he does this. Now, I told you that Paul is going to require of us to think hard about God and his word. From Old Testament to to Revelation to Christ's coming. And to New Covenant and New Testament. And that is what he's doing. He is not ashamed of loving God with all of his mind. And I want to encourage you, if that's your temptation this morning, he's getting kind of heady here. Well, don't back away from loving God with all of your mind this morning. Because we need to do that. God calls us and commands us to do that. And honestly, as we love God with all of our mind, it fuels our hearts and our passions and our love for God all the more. And living for God with all of our strength. So don't do all this kind of ripping to shreds of the Bible. And so he makes this argument from the lesser to the greater. So what in the world is that? (laughs) So in other words, if this is true, this lesser thing, then this greater thing is most certainly true. So if three-year-old Timmy can pick up that little toy truck then his 30-year-old dad certainly can. <laughs> you know, no big deal for dad. You know, dad will pick it up, throw it in the air, probably miss it and drop it and break it or something. But, you know, he can do it, no problem. That's the, the lesser, greater. Does it make sense? The lesser to the greater argument. And so he compares here then specifically the lesser man-made covenants in verse 15 with the greater God's rock-solid Abrahamic covenantal promises. There's a mouthful for you. But that's exactly what it is. And it is all those pieces put together. And they are rock-solid. So in Paul's day, there were man-made covenants that you couldn't cancel or add to once they were ratified. Now, today we kind of struggle with that because you can... Almost do whatever you want, you know, pretty much today. uh, All that stuff is out the window. But not so much in Paul's day. Once it was ratified, what was done was done. And so Paul, he is saying, if that is the case with us as people in our man-made covenants, making a human covenant, and by covenant, a binding agreement between two parties, then with God... And with his Abrahamic covenant promises, 
They are, oh my, certain, and they are solid, and they are absolutely immovable. If that's the case with us, almost certainly with God. Not going to change, not going to adjust. He will do it. Now the center of this promise, of God's promise, is the promise of the offspring, of the offspring. Verses 16 and 18. So the English word offspring... You know, we kind of struggle with this a little bit, you know, reading what Paul's saying here. You know, like offspring can kind of mean like more than one, you know. So offsprings, I don't think we have a word for that, right? You know, we don't have offsprings. It's not a word necessarily. So that's like, what are you doing there, Paul? Like offspring, offsprings doesn't seem to make sense. But uh, we just kind of need to go and kind of dive into where Paul is going here. And he's saying... Here, as we might be confused in this, he's making clear that the word is in the singular. And there's no problem with that in the Old Testament. So he's referring to one, not plural, referring to many. So in essence, the word, it means a seed, a seed. So offspring, a seed, a child, so one seed, One child, one offspring, not seeds, not children, not offsprings. There's where he used that word. It may be easier for us if we said, you know, seed and seeds. Okay, got it, (laughs) you know. But that's not the word he's dealing with here. I'm going to keep it offspring and offsprings. And so this, this emphasis here that he's giving, it's on offspring. It's not a fluke. This is a big deal in our Bibles. And I mean big deal. Like Genesis to Revelation big deal. You see it throughout the whole thing. All those boring genealogies, at least, you know, some may say they're boring. As you read them, you're like, a name after name after name. That is why. It's because they matter that much. It's talking about this. Seed. Seeds. Offspring. So it is part of God's promise to Abraham, offspring, but it begins before Abraham. It starts at the beginning or near the beginning. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Now there they were, Adam and Eve, naked and ashamed. Big change. They were naked and unashamed. No sin. No brokenness. No fall. Now in these verses we see no more. And so there they are. Adam and Eve naked and ashamed. Having disobeyed God. God, he tells them this. Even there, in the midst of the fall, he gives a glimmer of hope. Amen. Amen. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, singular. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his head. 
heal. One person. Singular. And so what is God doing in Genesis? He's bringing all of this about. (laughs) This one seed coming from one to the next. Well, maybe it will be Noah. No, (laughs) not Noah. Okay, well, maybe Abraham. No, it's not Abraham, and, and so it goes. One offspring, and so with Abraham, God promises to bless him and his offspring, singular, and again and again, the word is used like that in the singular again and again and again and again. And we see that. You can look this up later, at least in the ones I'm not going to cite. Genesis 12, 7. We see it there. Genesis 13, 15. We see it there. Genesis 17, 8. We see it there. And Genesis 22, 17 through 18. So 12, 7. 13, 15, 17, 8, 22, 17 through 18. Now, all those are good, except I think that Paul here is most likely referring to Genesis 13, 15 and Genesis 17, 8. Why? Because I like that option. No, <laughs> that's not why. There are those who will argue for the other, at least not so much Genesis 12.7, but definitely Genesis 12.17 to 18. But why is because he is quoting very specifically here, he's quoting word for word in the original language. And so, and to your offspring. And so let's look at this. So in Genesis 13, the context there is Abraham and Lot. And they're at a point of separating. Which land will you take? You know the, how it went, the scenario? You know, the good one or that one, you know? <laughs> so, you know, they're at this point, and so here we are, the separation over the land, and it says there, there, it says, the Lord said to Abram, not having his name changed yet, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. Singular. And that's exact quote. And to your offspring. Paul's tying into that. Second passage. Genesis 17.8. What's going on there? Where God, he appears to Abraham at 99 years old. Not God, but Abraham is 99 years old. And he says to Abraham, and I will give to you and to your offspring, there it is, after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Amen. And we see that. We see this singular kind of focus, one offspring, and then we see also as the stars in the heavens, Genesis 15, so will be your offspring, many. Well, Jesus comes and he fulfills all that. (laughs) He comes as the one. And this offspring, singular, tied to Genesis 3.15, a hope of someone who will come 
who will end the curse, Paul says, is ultimately fulfilled in Christ. Where do we get that? Verse 16. And to your offspring, who is Christ. That's who this is. That is who will do this. That That is who has done this. It's Christ. Praise the Lord. And all of this he did, he promised before the law. And so Paul, he is saying that the law does not cancel, nor is it the means of the fulfillment of this promise. This was not a promise that was bound to the law. It is a promise that God fulfilled in Christ, the offspring of Abraham. And so God's promise, it was not flimsy. His promise and His promises, they are rock solid. God did not cave. He did not adjust. He did not move on from this promise. He brought it about in Christ. So in view of God's rock-solid promises, you and I would be wrong to do anything less than to stake your life on God and His Word. To stake your life on God, on God and His Word. His Word is not fickle. It is not flimsy. It doesn't crack under the slightest bit of pressure. Oh, how many preachers need to hear that? No, we see here and we will see forever that God is faithful. Great is thy faithfulness. And his wisdom is infinitely great. His word may not be cool (laughs) in our day. It may not be trendy. And kids, I want you to hear this. It may not be trendy. You may not feel like it's cool with like your friends and so on. It may not be trending. Yet let me tell you, you need to stake everything on it. And we can stake everything on it. We can stake everything on Christ. Amen. And so take up His words, friends. Is it any wonder that we are facing all variety of struggles in our hearts, in our souls, in our relationships, and in our lives? In our day, as we're hearing all these Counsels from the world. Well, let me tell you what is flimsy, (laughs) what is fickle, what words will not last. It is those words that will not last. But we have a sure and certain word that we may stand on. We may stand on with confidence. And so God, He is calling us this morning to stake your life on His Word. He is calling you to take up His Word this morning for every single area of your life, saints. 
You were made for God, so if you want a fickle or flimsy word, then you go and you go run to the council of our day. They might have counsel that may be useful. But let me tell you this. God has given us everything for life and godliness. I'm not saying we can't learn from the world. But we most certainly must go to God in his word. Amen. So are we doing that? Are you doing that? Is there any area of your life that you've said, no, I think I'm going with the word of the world when it comes to how I think about education and how I think about life, how I think about marriage, how I think about the church, how I think about business, and on it goes. Your life and portion is to be Christ. And just to give one kind of focused application for us in this way. When Jesus says you cannot serve God in money, and then you go and serve money as your God and find that your soul is still unsatisfied, is that a surprise? Is that a surprise to you? John D. Rockefeller the great oil tycoon, of course, one of the most wealthiest men in America. Yet he said, I have made many millions, but they have brought me no happiness. So God, he is calling us this morning to stand upon his rock-solid promises. Not the flimsy kind, not the money kind, not the kind of counsel from the world kind, but His Word. So take up the Word of God. Believe in it, saints, and go to the bank on it. Now at this point, Paul, as we're hearing all these things, hearing all these things about the law and everything else, he asks the million-dollar question, doesn't he? One that if you haven't thought about it already, you're now probably thinking about it. But verse 9, he asks this. Why then the law? Like, we're hearing from everywhere, he's saying, all right, stay away from that. You know, don't go there. And so like, well, okay, well, what about the law then? Like, why, why even have that thing? I mean, just faith. I mean, what do you need that for then? Perfect question, right? So after all of his arguments, what now? What do we do with this thing? And so he gives the answer here also. And the law's function is this. To magnify our sinfulness. To magnify our sinfulness. And we see this in verses 19 through 20. And so he says there in verse 19, it was added because of transgressions. So the law was not given to give life. It was given to show that all of us are in terrible shape. We're having a no good, horrible, bad, very bad day. And this is what 
Moses was alluded to, alluding to as well. So as the people of Israel getting ready to go in the promised land. All right, <laughs> we're excited. <laughs> now let's go. Take us in, Joshua. We're going to miss you, Moses. But, you know, take us in. Be strong and courageous. Moses, he says to them in Deuteronomy 31, 26-27, Take this book of the law and put it by the side of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there for a witness against you. For I know how rebellious and stubborn you are. Behold, even today, while I'm yet alive with you, you have been rebellious against the Lord. How much more after my death? Words of hope. <laughs> no. Wow. How is that for encouragement? You know, getting ready to go in the promised land. All right. <laughs> you know. And Moses is like, yeah, you're getting ready, you know, to go into the promised land and all. But you are just all a bunch of rebels, you know. And you're going to break the law, and it will be a witness against you. And so that's what the law does. And that's what the law would do. It is a witness against us. As Megan <clears throat> read a moment ago from Romans 5, 20, the law came to increase the trespass. And so what it does is it, it puts a spotlight on our sin. So in other words, the law does not provide the Redeemer. The law does not provide the Redeemer. The law was given by God, but it does not stand on the same plane as the promise that God made to Abraham. It serves the promise, not vice versa. The law was given to Moses through angels, which make, may make us kind of confused there, but that's what it, it says there. I believe it's like Deuteronomy 37. You can look that up. Or not 37. Deuteron- it's in Deuteronomy. I should have wrote it down. But it's there. And you can look it up. I'll get it to you if you want it. And you can send me a text and I'll send it to you. But it was given to Moses through angels, and then Moses gave it to the people. So verse 20 literally is translated, the mediator is not for or of one. Verse 20, the mediator is not for or of one. And so why is he saying all this? Well, again, we come back to, we need to consider what Paul is saying here. And so God made a promise to Abraham God himself made this promise to Abraham. And so Paul or, is making this distinction between the covenant, Mosaic covenant, given to the Israelites with one or a number of, a number of people involved, angels, beings, angels, and then Moses as well, the intermediary. But with, with Abraham, he gave, God himself gave the promise to Abraham. Now, that doesn't mean that the law is not from God. It is. But Paul is making clear here that God's promise to Abraham is central. And so verse 
It says that God is one and he is the one who will provide the one we need. So even seeing all this though, as you're considering all these things, taking into, you know, all these things in your mind and heart, at the same time on a loudspeaker, even over an intercom, we need to hear this. Do not ignore the testimony of the law. Yes, everything Paul is saying is true and right, and yes, we need to hear that. Do not ignore the testimony of the law. The law's testimony is that you have transgressed it. You have sinned, and your sin is not okay. And you are not okay just the way you are. That's like almost every Disney movie you see nowadays, right? (laughs) You're fine just the way you are. We're not fine just the way we are. We're in a prison. We're held captive to sin in self. And that is its word to us. The law, it condemns. And it testifies to the world that it is not okay. And so Paul, he says of a law in 1 Timothy 1, 8-11, he says, now we know that the law is good. It's good. And so the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexual and moral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. And so the law, it comes and it does not decry some sin. It decries all sin. And if we're honest, I think we know this. We know that we're a mess. All of us. We all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so we know, we know we're in that prison cell. That's not where the law leaves us. The law actually is doing something. It doesn't merely condemn us. But the law, it magnifies our need for Christ. It magnifies our need for Christ. And so Paul, he asks, verses 21 through 25, and expressly in verse 21, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? And his answer is this. There's no contradiction here. There's no contradiction. The scripture or the law, it imprisoned 
And it showed and it shows people the dire state that they are in. They are in this cell with everywhere around you. You do not meet up with me. You have not obeyed. You have not loved God. You have not loved your neighbor. And so there you are, condemned and under a curse. And as people go on, they're even now doing everything in their power to avoid the truth that they are in that prison. They're trying and trying and trying to discount the Bible and saying, oh, no, no, no. You know, I really kind of, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to school. I'm going to read the Hebrew and the Greek, and I'm going to learn all this stuff just so I can give a contrary interpretation to all these things that God's Word plainly says. People are doing that everywhere, all over the world right now. They're trying to discount those passages that they don't like. They're trying to free themselves from their prison cell apart from God and apart from saying, I need a Savior. I can get myself out of this prison cell myself. But remember, it hems us in. And you're not getting out on your own. You are condemned and cursed from every single angle. God's wrath abides on you outside of Christ. So all the wrangling will not get them out, will not make it okay. Tim Keller recently said, today's culture believes the thing that we need salvation from is the idea that we need salvation. The irony is that we can't get away from needing salvation. And that's where we are. Our culture is saying we can save ourselves. We determine what is right and what is wrong. The answer from our culture is, oh, no, no, no. Homosexuality, LGBTQ, abortion, those aren't sin. Yet, there stands the word of God saying, still sin. You may wrangle, you may discount, you may try to avoid it, but God is saying, still sin. The law is testifying, still sin. Now, if you're hearing all that, maybe you're, you've done those things or you're struggling with those things this morning even. Let me just put this in perspective and unless we think that we're better if, if you're not struggling with those things today. The law also says a partiality, a pride, of arrogance, of adultery, of 
fornication, of lust, of covetousness, of greed, of lying, of unholiness, of grumbling, of gossip, of hate, and more. It still says, still sin. Still sin. So you may not be doing those things, those other things, but if you're doing these, still sin. And so the law, it was our guardian testifying that we are in prison so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might come to those who believe. So until faith or Christ came, the law, it declared over the world and it's declaring even now, still sin, such that as you and I are overcome on every side, we're in this prison cell. How do I get out of here? The light breaks in and that light is Christ. He is the key. And so your inadequacy, it points you to His adequacy. Your inadequacy points you to His adequacy and magnifies God's immense, incredible, lavish grace for every single one of us. None of us come in here and say, oh man, I'm better than that guy. No, you don't. Grace, that's it. Christ alone. And so our sin is like an alarm bell sounding the words of a Romans 5 that Megan read. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So even now, as we continue the struggle, even as those who are in Christ, friends, when you sin, when you struggle, hear the call. It isn't to hide from God. It isn't to excuse your sin. It isn't to put on a mask. It isn't to retreat. It is not to justify ourselves. It is to hear the call, the call, look to Christ. Every single time when your anger rises up, you need raise Christ higher. When lust and temptation call out, you call out to Christ When your pride is lofty, go and humble yourself and be with the lowly Christ. When the love of money burns within you, give all you have and all you are to Christ. And don't take it back again. And when your heart is hard, break it upon Christ. Christ is no cliché 
He is indeed our answer this morning, saints and sinners. May God help his grace abound in your heart this morning. May Christ free you and may the light of Christ shine upon you this morning. If you are here and you are in that prison cell, God has made the way and he has broken to your cell with the light of Christ and you need run to Christ and receive him by faith and he will save you. And so hear the words of God this morning and see your need and throw yourself wholly upon the promised offspring, Jesus Christ. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Let's pray. Father, we come and we pray right now as we've walked through some difficult words, but may we not avoid them, the reality of our sinfulness, the glory of the promise of your Son you sent into the world to save us. We've seen your holiness, we've seen your justice, we've seen your righteousness, we've seen we are none of those things and Christ alone is our hope may he be our righteousness this morning may he be our holiness may may he be our life this morning and so I pray as we respond to your word may we come as we sing come to the altar may we respond this morning if it means confessing some sin if it means coming forward and trusting Christ as Savior, or just even there in your seat, putting your faith in Christ. If you're here and you don't know Christ this morning, Christ will receive you. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And so we pray for you that you would respond. We pray for all of us that we respond as we have this time of response. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.